0: I'm David Moskropp. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. Around the world, Black Lives Matter activists and their allies are demanding justice and structural change in response to years and years of racist violence, marginalization, and repression. In many instances, they are being met with further state violence at the hands of police and resistance from elected representatives and officials. However, despite continued state intransigence, One of the core demands gaining traction right now is the call to defund the police. But what does that mean? And, moreover, could it happen? Are we on the brink of lasting foundational change? Is this time different? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Fabio Rojas, professor of sociology at Indiana University Bloomington and, among other things, a scholar of social organization and activism. Let's let's start by trying to understand the nature of the of the moment a little bit. What is it about the summer of 2020, about the death of George Floyd, that has generated the organized global action that we're seeing?
1: Yeah, so that, that's a really great question. Um, I would start thinking about a number of factors. Um, number one is availability. Uh, we're living in a pandemic right now, which means a lot of people are at home. Uh, They may not be employed. And so uh, just in terms of an everyday uh, time budget where we have uh, time to spend on different things, uh, there's a lot more attention uh, that you can pay to this issue. Uh, Another issue is that, um, you know, we're living in an age of social media. And when, um, you know, uh, the police murdered George Floyd in Minneapolis, uh, you know, everybody could see it. Like It was literally being recorded as it happened, and it very quickly spread through social media. Um, This is not the most recent example of interracial violence we've seen. We've seen other uh, killings recently in the U.S. And then also one factor I think that people really need to appreciate is that we're living in a time with a Republican president, and uh, one that's particularly antagonistic. Uh, who seems to revel in uh, really antagonizing people on social media and through his appearances and speeches. And so all these factors are coming together where we, we live in an age of social media. A lot of people, uh, because of the pandemic, are a little bit more available for protests than they might have been in the past. And we're living with the president who uh, really seems to relish taunting the other side. Uh, and that uh, is a number of factors that really led to the uh, wave of protests that we're seeing today.
0: I've been thinking about this a moment a little bit in the context of, of past revolutionary moments, not because I think that the United States is on the brink of a revolution, although you don't always know, but, you know, there are both sort of long-term and short-term consequences of uh, that, that generate a revolution, or, you know, I mean, was the French Revolution about a bread shortage? Of course not, but it certainly helped set it off. I mean, is it that there's, there's are there are both long-term factors that this was building, this was a long time coming, and then sort of short-term, immediate contingent factors? Is there a mixing of those two things going on?
1: I think there's a mixing of two things. Uh, probably the easiest thing to understand uh, is the long-term factor. And the long-term factor that's really feeding this is the um, increasing power of police in American society. Uh, we've seen uh, a rise in what people call mass incarceration, the building of large prisons, that uh, by historical standards have very large populations. Uh, we have not uh, incarcerated this proportion of the population at this level ever in American history. It's gone down actually a little bit in the last couple of years, but it hit a peak a couple of years ago. It was quite, quite a large number of people. Uh, this also translates to uh, what some people call the militarization of the police, where the police have uh, been given permission to use uh, you know uh, more uh, dangerous weapons. They're allowed to use force more often. Uh, the American courts have a doctrine called qualified immunity, which uh, essentially uh, makes it very difficult for people to lodge complaints and win lawsuits against police officers who injure them during the course of uh, their work. So all these issues, you know there's uh, racism against African Americans, there's the rise of the uh, you know the prison system, the rise of uh, the warrior cop, as uh, some writers have called these police officers. those are the long-term trends that really have built up to this moment then there are also short-term trends or trends are very specific to specific areas Uh, minneapolis has had a long problem with uh police officers um and they've been actually investigated by the federal government on on a couple occasions as recently as 2012 the Obama administration gave them a clean bill of health after people complained about their police department. Clearly, that was not an accurate assessment. So locally in Minneapolis, there's been quite a bit of violence, a quite a bit of uh, disagreement and uh, frustration over the lack of reform in police in that specific city. And then when uh, George Floyd was killed, And the police killed them, that really set off um, a larger uh, wave of protest uh, that was really Minneapolis-specific, but then kind of touches on other areas of the country that have also had problems with their police departments.
0: So I want to move on to sort of two related things. One is to talk a little bit about more about the police and and the defund the police movement, and, and perhaps a little bit about why it's not framed as abolishing the police, because there seems to be a tension there, and then talk about how... Those in the streets can can consolidate a lot of the demands and a lot of this energy right now to try to get some policy outcomes. But first, let's let's get into the defund the police movement, um, and perhaps even tie it to prison abolitionism. Uh, you know, what, how would, how would you characterize the defund the the police movement, and and how would it differ from say an abolish the police movement, or are those the same thing?
1: Yeah. So when you think about uh, the policy proposals that social movements offer, they usually offer you uh, a range of options from the most mellow uh, option that maybe the average guy on the street may understand to the most radical. So uh, the specific things that you mentioned, like prison abolition, police abolition, defunding the police, police reform, they actually fall on a spectrum. So there's not like a, a clean break between one policy and the other. Rather, think of a Think of them as a range of options from the most uh, um, modest to the most radical. Probably the most modest one is simply just the police reform model, where you just say, we'll we'll stop doing this activity, we'll stop doing that activity, or institute one or two rules or a couple of rules. So for example, um, last Friday, the Minneapolis City Council uh, passed a resolution saying that they now ban chokeholds. So they're saying that you cannot use that form of lethal, lethal force. Uh, The city of San Francisco just passed a rule saying that they're not going to hire police officers who have a prior history of complaints. You might think that that is a pretty modest proposal, but it turns out that took a lot of effort to implement. So the first step is just to say to reform the police, to come up with better rules, better training, that sort of thing. Then the next step is to say, well, you know, maybe uh, the issue isn't fixing the police; is maybe we have too many police. And this is where defunding comes in where you say okay well maybe we have too many police officers and you and i we can talk about the theory like why do you think we have too many police officers but you can say we have too many of them and so what we need to do is is not worry so much about reform but just reducing the raw number of police we have too many of them on the street they create more problems than they're worth and uh what we're gonna do is we're gonna do that through the funding mechanism and there was a news item last week in the United States uh, where the media was saying that the Minneapolis City Council had voted to defund the police. That's not quite the, quite the right thing. Actually, what they said at a political rally, and it's something like nine out of 12 or nine out of 13 city council members appeared at a rally, and they said they intended to work through the budget process to divert funds from the police to other mm-hmm. things. So the defu- So they didn't vote on it. Uh, if you know anything about city politics, you know, budgets are extremely messy things. We don't know what policy was going to come out in the end. But there, I think the model uh, they're laying out is, is uh, you know, one step beyond reform, uh, which they already did. They already said you can't use chokeholds, and they passed some other things that we could talk about. Uh, but they said we're going to reduce the funding and take those funds and put them towards social services. So if there's somebody on your street who's creating um, an issue because say they have a mental illness, you call a social worker, you don't call a police officer. So you, you reduce the funds. Then on the more radical side of things, you really reduce the funds a lot, and you just say, "We really just don't need that many police or we need zero or nearly zero police," and that gets to the police abolition model. So you see that's kind of a on the other getting to the other end of the spectrum. Um a sociology professor named Alex Vitale in uh, Brooklyn uh, made this case uh, in a book called The End of Policing. Uh, Angela mm-hmm. Davis uh, argued for for abolition of prisons and law enforcement in a book called Are Prisons Obsolete? Uh, Rodney Balco, from a libertarian perspective, has also talked about the vast reduction of police in various uh, writings. And, you know, the theme there is that, you know, policing is just a bad model for creating order and safety in society. The idea that there are some people who get to carry on firearms, who get to use force, um, you know, that creates more problems than it's worth and it's not as effective as you think it is. So let's really not just defund the police or not just, uh, you know, reform the police. That's kind of another point on the spectrum where you could say, well, we're going to defund you so we can disband the police and reform them and create a new police department with new rules. People like Angela Davis and Alex Vitale would say, no, no, that's not even... Uh, half of the story. You have to really think about getting rid of them entirely and thinking about a new way of providing safety for people. And that's the range that people are talking about.
0: And, and that ties in, I mean, you mentioned prisons. I mean, it strikes me as that that there is a sort of coherent philosophy that says if you want to also get rid of prisons alongside it because the sort of uh, militarization of a section of, of the population, especially in a for-profit model, is just going to en- engender this sort of violence in the first place. I mean, you, you mentioned earlier sort of they do more harm than good is one of the arguments. It strikes me that there's a complex that has arisen, that it's, you know, you, you can look at the police individually, you can look at the court system, you can look at the prisons individually, but the thing comes together to create a complex that, that in which these things feed into one another and create a, a sort of almost, you know, militarized public spaces in which some groups of people are being disproportionately uh, well, you know, abused or killed or incarcerated, and then you got to tear all of that down, right?
1: Right, exactly. And uh, people who write in this tradition of, uh, you know, prison abolition, police defunding, or police abolition, um, usually come at it from uh, two perspectives. One is what they call, you know, the prison complex. Uh, that's a very common term that they use, and they really do see it in, ter- in the terms that you describe—that is part of a system. Uh, There are lots of people participating in it. There are lots of people benefiting from it. And uh, this system of policing, surveillance, incarceration, and punishment um, is a system that profits not only private groups like private corporations that maintain prisons, but police guard unions, police officers, uh, prosecutors. There's a whole group of people whose uh, livelihoods uh, stem from uh, prosecuting people and incarcerating them. And then the other, um, you know, perspective on this comes from uh, from the discipline of economics. And what economists will often say is, like, they say, look at the incentives. What are the incentives in the system that you set up, right? And so, for example, prosecutors uh, are more popular because people uh, like them better when they get thrown in jail, right? Or the more people that you put in jail is more of an incentive for— um, uh, more for more for an incentive it creates an incentive to hire more police officers and pay them more, right, and so it's just kind of an endogenous thing where once you set up the system, it kind of grows, and then uh, the people who are easiest to pick up and the people who are easiest to profit off of are often uh, people of low income or uh, i think minorities in your society. so what you talked about the prison uh, complex, you know the radical critique. Is that you know it is a kind of abusive system that really criminalizes people who otherwise could have fruitful lives, and then the uh, economic criticism is that you have set up bad incentives, and now you're just sending people just for the to jail just for the sake of sending them to jail. You're not making things better.
0: And and politicians benefit from this too, right? I mean, I I think of of the so you mentioned prosecutors. I think of of politicians in the same sense. Uh, There's an incentive to look tough on crime. There's an incentive. I mean. Across the political spectrum, you know, you might think it's a Republican problem, but Joe Biden has plenty of baggage on this too. I mean, plenty of Democrats do, right? That it creates an incentive for for people across the spectrum to to look like they're tough on crime, quote unquote, and and, uh, and then feed into that system. That you know, all those incentives go, you know, they they pervade even politics. And then when that's if that's the case, I mean, how do you uproot that? I mean, how do you change the incentives, for instance?
1: Right. You're, you're completely yeah. correct. Uh, so, for example, when people study city politics uh, from an academic perspective, one of the first things they notice is that the, the first issue a mayor has to deal with is dealing with police unions and their voters. Mm-hmm. Right? like You can't really get stuff done within city government unless you somehow come to um, an understanding with those uh, interest groups. Uh, you're also correct in pointing out this is not a, a party problem. This actually crosses both parties. Um, And we already saw some of that this week, where after people started talking about defunding the police, people like Joe Biden said, no, the problem isn't uh, defunding police. The problem is we're not giving them enough money. And he actually had a counterproposal to actually reform the police by giving them better training and increasing their funds so they could uh, learn how to do their job better. So then your question about, which is about how do we change the incentives, this is where the radical position pops up, where they would say, Uh, look, you know, uh, tinkering with the system isn't going to change the basic incentive. Uh, And so what we have to do is you really have to uh, pull the whole system down uh, uh, from scratch, because as long as you have this large uh, prison complex up, you have a lot of actors who um, are invested in the system and will uh, tooth and nail uh, fight uh, even the most modest reforms, right? So, for example, uh, people ask, why is it that the officer who killed Tamir Rice in Ohio he was the boy with a toy plastic gun who was literally just shot uh, by a police officer uh, and that officer actually had um, uh, a record of violence against other people. Well, the answer is you know um, you know once you uh, create a, a situation uh, where uh, politicians rely on the votes and supports of uh, police officers and unions, then that creates a voting block. And they want to protect their own, which is a very common thing in all politics. You know, you know, like any any group wants to protect its own. And so, people uh, like Angela Davis or Rodney Balco or Alex Vitale would say, you know, the issue isn't just tinkering because those incentives are there, long as they're there. You have to really pull it down, and you have to really do some radical reforms or abolition. How can
0: th- this moment be different than, I'm thinking from the perspective of of those who are organizing, those who are in the streets, those who are lobbying, who want fundamental structural change, including radical change, how do they take this moment and consolidate and and bring something about? I mean, I I think one of the critiques of, for instance, the Occupy movement, I'm not entirely sold by it, but I think there's some compelling parts, is that it didn't quite consolidate in the way that it might have, or in the way that, for instance, the Tea Party movement did into a party and got folks elected to Congress and so on. So I, I, I'm wondering how uh, those who are organizing, those who are protesting, those who are lobbying, can consolidate this moment and, and can generate some some gains, some structural changes. And, and because you know, often. One of the critiques of protest is, well, it doesn't do anything. Well, that's not true. we We know that, in fact, protests can do a lot of things and a lot of things that that often aren't taken seriously through the the usual processes. But in this moment, how can those who are pushing for structural change uh, you know seize the moment and and, and uh, generate right. some of that?
1: Yeah, so this is a constant issue in uh, social movements and activism which is sometimes you get a lot of attention because something really horrible happens, right? And then uh, a lot of people will look at the protest and it goes away and people ask, you know, what was the point of that? And the important thing to remember is that a protest is only one part of the process. So you may see, uh, you know, a thousand people or 10,000 people come out to protest uh, police violence. And of course, most of them are not, are going to limit their uh, participation just to that one protest event. They'll come out, they'll do that one thing, and they'll go away. However, when that happens, there's a smaller group of people who decide to really invest resources, invest time in building a more durable movement. And this is uh, the tricky part of uh, social activism, which is the thing that gets you the most attention is the protest. And that's by design. It's a mass gathering of people, when you gather a 1,000 people for anything, people are going to notice. You might get on TV. You might attract attention. But then the trick, and this is the difference between successful movements and ones that are a lot less successful, is that successful ones are able to think a little bit more long term and say, okay, some of you came out for protests and some of you are going to stay in contact with us. Can we collect money? Could you help with the phone bank campaign? Can you support this political candidate? Can you call your city council member for this or that? And that's less glamorous. And it doesn't get you a lot of points. Uh, Most people will never know about your participation, but it's that uh, more intense level of activism that really makes or break a movement. And that's what I think uh, Black Lives Matter and the anti-police violence movement has to work on today, which is to say they have a moment. They have the attention. Uh, What section of people are willing to sit for the long haul and really work on this issue when the economy changes, when there's another outbreak of COVID in a while? And that's the difference, you know. Can they they create a group of people, a cohort of people, who are going to keep pushing even when the uh, cameras are not turned on?
0: Right, because I mean, there's there's a critical juncture here. It seems. I mean, for for a bunch of different reasons, and, and in a different a bunch of different areas. I mean, the, the pandemic, for instance, has ushered in a critical juncture where we might take another path. I mean, in Canada, we're we're struggling with this too, and, and in fact, Canada has. Many of the same problems the United States has, and and so we're thinking through the same questions. Although we often like to pretend that we don't have those problems, but plainly we do. Um, you, you know, I, I wonder how uh, how it, how you resist bawling for that just vote trap. You know, I mean, it, you mentioned the fact that it's hard work and that it needs persistence, and then you see people sort of popping in and saying, "Well, just vote," and the pushback is is that that is just. That's, first of all, not going to be enough <laughs> uh, and it's the least you can do. You know, what does that that actual long-term structural work look like? I mean, I, I, for instance, think about getting folks elected down ballot, right? I mean, I, I'm looking at, for instance, the Bernie Sanders campaign and, and part of what's going on with that movement and part of it seems to be, oh, we're going to elect folks all over the place to try to create a foundation to facilitate these changes. I mean, that seems to be part of it. But beyond that, what does that look like? Is it lobbying? Is it uh, future protests? Is it donations? Is it, what what does that look like?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And when I think about that question, I think about a book a couple of years ago uh, called The Pro-Life Movement, which is about pro- anti-abortion uh, protesters, uh, written by a professor named Ziad Munson. And uh, he had a pretty simple way of laying out what movements do if they want to be effective, which is they really have three parts. Um, number one, there's kind of a public opinion or education part where, you know, part of the movement is really just trying to change people's opinion on an issue. And the reason that this is important is that public opinion is the bedrock of policy in a democratic society. It doesn't mean that every policy, uh, is approved of by the people. Obviously there are a lot of policies that people don't know about, but it gives you a raw, uh, kind of range of options. Like what is viable within that society, Uh, And that is uh, determined by public opinion. So if you don't change people's minds on an issue, so for example, uh, I think I saw one survey that said, you know, uh, only 16% of people want to completely or substantially defund the police. That's clearly not enough people in society in order to create a massive change uh, around policing. You're going to need some more people. Then number two, in addition to public opinion, there's politics. And when uh, Ziad Munson talked about politics, he just meant all the stuff that you just mentioned, voting lobbying calling a representative challenging somebody to primary writing letters uh, pushing specific policy proposals and that's the second thing and then the third thing are is direct action you know the kind of protests we might see like coming to the streets or disrupting a certain activity uh and that's the third uh face of the social movement so and su- successful social movements you usually have all the three of these things operating on some level like there are people really working on public opinion and changing cultural attitudes around issues some people specialize in fundraising and lobbying your local state senator about some issue in the state capitol or provincial capital. Um, and then there are people who just do direct action you know, who just take it to the streets in some way. and effective movements tend to really pull these three things together in order to make things happen.
0: Uh, part of that is is coalition building, I, I would imagine as well. I mean part of this is you need I mean you need to change minds and part of that is, is also about creating a, a big tent. You mentioned uh, libertarians earlier and, and I find this utterly fascinating because, there is there are some affinities in some cases between libertarians and and sort of radical activists that you might not expect you know that they want the similar things for very different reasons uh, i wonder have you seen libertarian mobilization right now in a way that's been productive or useful that that overlaps with with folks who are in the streets now
1: yeah, that's a really great question. And the way that you put it is actually spot on, which is sometimes they want the same policy, but they want very di- they want it for very different reasons. And uh, for example, libertarians have uh, been uh, some of the people ringing the alarm about police for years and i think i mentioned rodney balco he's probably the most famous person in that stream of thought who's chronicled in article after article the the racially disparate impacts of law enforcement the mass incarceration i think he might have been the ter- person to even term the uh, create the term warrior cop you know the idea that we have these over militarized police he's not the only person but he's definitely the uh, most well-known person from that stream and then you ask you know like how could you know how could this form of social change bring these two groups together the first thing you've got to realize is that progressive or radical people are just simply way larger in number than libertarians. Uh, if you look at public opinion surveys, like the number of people who have libertarian opinions is like 2%, 5%, 10%, depending on the definition. Uh, you know, Libertarian presidential candidates will get like 1% of the vote or 3% of the vote. So you're not talking a large group of people. And that's in contrast to say, uh, think about all the people who voted for Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. You know that might be like twenty percent of the popul- population. That's like maybe a third of the Democratic Party or something like that. Uh, so we're talking just like vastly larger numbers. So even if every single Libertarian came to a Black Lives Matter protest, <laughs> the crowd size would barely <laughs> change. Barely change. However, one area in which they've been very effective is in uh, you know intellectual development and agenda setting. And this is an important thing about social movements. Uh, And this comes from a book written uh, by Hans Noel at Georgetown University. He made this argument that the policy of tomorrow uh, comes from the op-eds of today. And he he went back in history. He kind of made a historical case about this using uh, data from the Prohibition and some other eras of American history. But the basic idea is that if you want to know what policy 20 years is going to look like from now, look at all the arguments that intellectuals and think tanks are having today, and then some of those will survive the political process and become policy in five, 10, 20 years. So that's probably where libertarians are probably going to have the biggest impact, which is to say, look, we've been raising the alarm uh, about this for decades. Uh, we believe in individual autonomy and freedom and human rights. And policing is just really uh, the opposite of uh, of what we really believe, you know. Um, you know, the idea that police officers should have tanks and tear gas the the idea that you can choke somebody for selling cigarettes illegally, which is the way Eric Garner died, or that you can choke somebody for for possessing a twenty dollar bill that's not real, uh, obviously, you know what libertarian who believes in individual freedom would say that is a just outcome of the action. So there, I would say for libertarians, you know, is to step up and uh, be part of the choir and to add those policy proposals, add the data and really uh, broaden the intellectual environment or the Overton window, expand the range of what people can think about. And that's probably the biggest contribution they'll have simply because their numbers aren't that large.
0: What about social media? I mean, you mentioned social media a little earlier and said, I mean, look, we, we have videos of police violence now, of state violence. We, we see helicopters uh, flying low over protesters, we we you know in, in some sense that not only reveals state violence but it also sends a message to others who can coordinate. Uh, now, of course, we've also sort of seen hack you know uh, sorry not hack um you know click click activism. What well, well, I can't remember the term. Uh, slacktivism. Slacktivism. Like
1: slacktivism. Yes. <laughs> uh,
0: slacktivism and, and there's always and there's occasionally sort of a dismissing of social media as oh that's just uh, that's just you know. Uh, you know, top level, it's not particularly deep, it's 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 cheap and easy. But it, it, it plainly social media is playing a role in in both uh revealing a lot of what's happening and coordinating. So I'm wondering to to what extent social media plays a role in facilitating this and where it's useful and, and where it's just not useful, where it like leads to slacktivism
1: Yeah, so in some ways it's incredibly useful. And the reason that it's useful is that um, all politics is based on mobilizing a relatively small group of people to your side. Um, there's a bit of a misunderstanding, in my opinion, about how politics changes over time. There's this belief that you need to get like everybody on board. Uh, that does happen occasionally, but that's really not typical. What happens in most political struggles is that one small group has a little bit more force or more leverage than another small group, and they're fighting over an issue, and they're able to win. Um, so, for example, it would be Black Lives Matter activists versus police unions or something like that, or pro taxers versus anti taxers or something like that. Um, and what social media is really good is allowing more people to mobilize their group, to mobilize their small slice of American society or Canadian society, and to mobilize it around an issue. And so, social media is really beautiful for doing that. that if there's an issue that is really important, you can get your message out there immediately. Uh, in terms of the issues that I prefer, you know, I'm a really big advocate of uh, uh, immigration liberalization, and uh, you know, I will even use Facebook advertising to, to attract mm. people to events that I that I offer. And that's way easier than the old system of you know using flyers or telephone trees to recruit people to events. Instead, I'll say well, I'll just pay fifty or hundred bucks for a Facebook ad. Uh, their other social movements have actually built entire revolutions on Facebook. <laughs> the, probably the most famous is the Arab Spring, where a number of activists, they learned about nonviolent uh, protest tactics, and then they realized that if, if they met in person, this is around 2010 or 2011, they realized that they met in person, that the government would uh, clamp down on them quite violently, like in Egypt and Tunisia. So mm-hmm. they learned how to use Facebook before the Egyptian government did. And so they are able to stage entire social movements. Uh, So in terms of communication, fundraising, getting your ideas out there, reaching out, social media is fantastic. But then you also raise the issue of slacktivism, the idea that maybe you're deflating the movement or taking the wind out of the sails, where, um, you know, just to take police violence as an example, um, it's just an issue where you just have to put your foot down over years and just say, look, you know, when you uh, pull people over, you can't racially profile them. You can't use this kind of force. You know, we we have to dial that back. And that's not something you can do through one click or one donation of a dollar or five dollars. Those things can help. But that's really only the beginning of the story. And uh, a lot of movements often uh, get tangled up. You know, they do so much online advertising and reach out that they forget there's a follow up. You know, it can't just be digital. There has to be some extra step where you insert yourself into the political process and actually try to make the policy happen.
0: What did you think of the uh, of the black squares people were posting on Instagram and other platforms on, on I think it was Blackout Tuesday? I saw a lot of pushback on that, especially from uh, Washington Post uh, Global Opinions editor uh, uh, Karen Ataya. And you know, it, it's funny because I woke up and saw the saw the movement and thought, okay, that makes sense, and and posted one. And as the day went on, I started thinking, oh. You know, is this the way? I'm seeing a lot of pushback on that, and maybe in fact this this doesn't contribute to anything. Uh, you know, is that an is that an example of slacktivism? Was was that in fact doing more harm than good?
1: Um, you know, I wouldn't say that's doing more harm than good, uh, but I would say is that is a very specific thing done in order to do a very specific goal. Um, and what I would say is, you know, uh, first of all, you know, I just want to say up front that I really do defend everybody's freedom of speech. I think that when people put their issues out there, that's a good thing. We need to debate them. Um, so even if I don't think it was the most effective tactic in the world, it doesn't mean that I have negative opinions about people who do it. Right. Uh, but rather to say, you know, what is, what is that really about? You know, what is the goal that you're trying to achieve Uh, Through that particular tactic. And in Blackout Tuesday, you know, I would say there are a couple of pretty sensible goals. There are things like, uh, you know, keeping the issue alive, making sure that people don't forget. Uh, Number two, showing that you really care about an issue. Maybe encouraging other people to think about it. And those are all really positive things. Uh, but I think people would be uh, misled if they believe that um, a little bit of social media uh, solidarity and showing that you care about an issue is the same thing as actually making the issue change. Uh, and that is a mile away, or I'm sorry, in Canada, kilometers away from uh, you know, uh, actually going to a police station and saying, you know we're the citizens of this town. We heard about an issue. Let's talk about this. Where are some more humane ways to uh, provide public safety. And so I'm not against Blackout Tuesday. I think, you know, people have the right to express their opinions. Um, I don't know if it really did any damage. Like, I'm not sure where that argument uh, draws its logic from. But, you know, it's definitely a small step compared to the larger road or the longer road any social movement has to take. If they actually want to get policies and behavior changed.
0: I mean, the thing that I was trying to interrogate about it was the sort of performative act, uh, aspect of it. And, it's you know, I mean, we all fall or many of us fall for this sort of performative social media trap, even when you are trying to do better or you mean better. And then it's only later you think, oh, why did I do that? Where did that come from? Uh, you know, I, I wonder th- there, there was some conversation about whether or not that was actually taking focus away from sharing what was actually happening, right? And so instead of of getting information about what police were doing or information about the protests were doing, you just got a black square. And I I mean, I think one of the concerns was um, what we want to do is boost that information instead of sort of of, of obscure it.
1: Yeah, that's a really great question about whether this kind of performative uh, behavior crowds out more informative behavior. Um, Certainly for a day, you know, you didn't get as much, uh, say, links to, um, you know, bailout funds. Like, that's the thing that's been going around, social media a lot, you know, providing links to uh, to organizations that are helping activists or bailing people out of jail or providing support for families whose, uh, whose uh, family members have been victimized. Um, so definitely there's a little bit of crowding out. But I would say that the media environment is so incredibly rich today that if you truly cared— about uh, you know uh, donating to a Black Lives Matter chapter in your town or donating to a bailout fund for activists, that would be extraordinarily easy, uh, given this thing called Google right. and uh, everything on Facebook. That yeah, maybe it did crowd it out for a couple of hours, but to anybody who has even the smallest inkling of interest, it wouldn't be hard to find people to donate to or people to help out.
0: So I, I want to close out on looking forward. And specifically looking ahead to the 2020 election it it, it it i don't think it's an overstatement to say this is probably one of the most important elections in american history in part because there are serious questions about whether it can be done properly uh, but also the policy issues are extraordinarily important and there's a big i mean as, as deeply problematic as biden is for instance th- and you know the left i my Position of the left certainly shouldn't just flock to Biden because he's not Donald Trump. He's plainly better than Donald Trump, and so I wonder how all of this fits into the lead up to the 2020 election and um, the election itself.
1: Yeah, so that's a really interesting point. So if you're asking the question, how will these this round of protests affect the uh, election? Um, you know, obviously we're only going to know afterwards. Um, you know, but what we can do is we can say. You know, typically how do elections run on the national level uh, usually at least in the US and in most other democratic societies elections are really about the economy so if people are um, you know uh, making a judgment about how how good the economy is and whether they're blaming the president or the prime minister or the ruling party uh, that's number one incumbency matters a little bit um, you know, so if you're an incumbent in, uh, in the in the White House, you tend to get a little bit of, of a boost compared to similar candidates. Um, and then we could also just ask about just general approval, just like overall, how do people think about the incumbent party? And we have data on that. So we're in a recession. Uh, I don't know whether it would have happened anyway, even in the absence of a pandemic, but we have it. We have extremely high levels of unemployment that can help uh, Trump. Uh, Number two, uh, there's incumbency, but it doesn't seem to be boosting Trump very much in the uh, pre-election polls. Uh, Biden has actually a much bigger uh, lead in the polls, uh, consistently than Hillary Clinton did in 2016. She averaged about two or three points over the election cycle. And even at some points, Trump tied her in the rolling average of polls, uh, that various groups, uh, compile. Uh, so it was a pretty close race, but here Biden is just sailing above uh, Trump in most cases. Um, and then, um, and then you can ask, you know, given that general picture, How much are these protests really going to shift people? Uh, Remember that the U.S. does not have a direct election system where just the the person with the most votes wins. Otherwise, Hillary Clinton would be president and Al Gore would be president or would have been president. Instead, we have a system where you have to win each state, and that gives you a certain number of points. And so you can get goofy outcomes where if you overperform or underperform in some states, you may get less votes than the other person but still win the election. Uh, And so then you have to ask, well, these protests uh, maybe tip some of these kind of uh, Midwestern battleground states, as we call them down here, um, and push them towards Biden? Uh, so you have to ask, you know, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin. Uh, they went for Trump in 2016, but by razor-thin margins. Uh, and then in a recession, they might be going to Biden anyway. Uh, so, uh, but you could also say that maybe in a place like Detroit, like, you know, activism around BLM and police issues might bring out a few extra voters. But right now, what I would say is that Biden, even before the pandemic, even before the, um, protests, has had a pretty strong lead in polls. There's very little evidence that average voters have come over to Trump. It's basically just the Republican base that's supporting him. Um, and then you have to ask how many voters are going to make, uh, policing, uh, the issue that makes them switch from Republican to Democrat. And it's not clear to me that that number is terribly large.
0: Right. So then is, does it then become a matter of saying, let's use all this energy, let's use all this capacity, let's, l- and let's turn it towards organizing around getting out the vote, about donating to candidates down ballot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and how does the left also keep Biden honest?
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, and here, here's my advice, and people have asked me this question for years when it comes to various issues, such as the anti-war movement or, you know, uh, police protests, a- anti-police uh, violence protests, and here's my advice that I always give to activists, which is, um, first of all, uh, don't be partisan, don't turn this into a Republican versus Democrat thing, um, and there's a lot of problems when you do that, because when you just hitch onto one team, and you vote for that one team consistently then they take you for granted. Mm-hmm. Uh, number 2 you should primary them. And this is one reason I think that the average Republican politician cares about their base a little bit more than the Democratic politicians do because they know that if they don't uh, you know uh, give the base what they want on issues like gun rights or abortions or taxes they get primaried. You know they get challenged. And I see a lot less of that. So for example, you know how many people from Occupy Wall Street primaried a Democratic incumbent? right? Uh, how many people who are abolitionists in terms of police or prisons are going to primary a Democrat? Uh, maybe the only person I can think of is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York. Uh, but even then she's walked back a lot of abolitionist positions and she's not being primaried. Um, so that's issue number two, you got to primary people really hard. And then number three, uh, you know, stop looking at Donald Trump. Um, I don't mean that in an aesthetic sense, uh, you can judge him uh, as you will. But the point is, uh, he's clearly trolling people and just yanking your chain. Instead, take all that energy and think about building your local community organization uh, and think about contacting your city council and asking them why the police are doing what they're doing like that. That's going to have a much more direct effect than 8000 angry tweets about Donald Trump. So those are my uh, opinions, which is, um, you know, primary people don't be partisan and focus on your local efforts. And it's not, these are not silver bullets, they're not gonna solve everything, but that's a much more um, viable form of politics than just being enraged at Donald Trump all the time.
0: Well, thank you, that, that brings us to time. I, I, I could could talk with you about this all day, uh, but uh, I feel like you've given us a ton to think about, and so thank you very much for, for joining me today.
1: Thank uh, you very much,
0: it's been a pleasure. And to everyone listening, I'll just say um, I I hope you take a a moment or a few moments to to consider uh, things that you've heard today, especially anything that might have jarred you, because that's usually the first step in in understanding something. And I'll ask those who who are deeply engaged in this to to think about especially how, and I'm certainly going to be thinking about this, how we keep the momentum going um, in Canada as well, because Canada uh, has the same problems that the united states have even if it has even if they're not always quite as bad uh, and we ought to be doing that work here as as much as as anywhere so uh, thanks once more for joining me today and thanks to everyone for listening and we'll see you again soon